Chapter Thirty Nine of Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Thirty Nine. The brief trip to the Berkshires was longer than any he had taken these nine months. He looked forward amicably to the journey, remembering details of travel, such trivial touches as the overbrass washbowls of the Pullman sleeper and how, when the water is running out, the inside of the bowl is covered with a whitish film of water, which swiftly peels off. He recalled the cracked white paint of a steamer's ventilator, the abruptly stopping mmm of the foghorn, the vast smoky roof of a Philadelphia train shed, clamorous with the train bells, of a strange town giving a sense of mystery to the travelers stepping from the car for a moment, to stretch his legs, an ugly junction station platform, with resin oozing from the heavy planks in the spring sun, the polished binnacle of the S.S. Panama. He expected keen joy in new fields and hills. Yet all the way north he was trying to hold the train back. In a few minutes now he would see Ruth, and at this hour he did not even know definitely that he liked her. He could not visualize her, he could see the sleeve of her blue corduroy jacket. Her eyes he could not see. She was a stranger. Had he idealized her? He was apologetic for his unflattering doubt. But of what sort was she? The train was stopping at her station with rattling windows and a despairing grind of wheels. Carl seized his overnight bag and suitcase with fictitious enthusiasm. He was in a panic. Emerging from the safe, impersonal train upon the platform, he saw her. She was waving to him from a one-seated phaeton, come alone to meet him. And she was the adorable, the perfect comrade. He thought jubilantly as he strode along the platform. She's wonderful. Love her. Should say I do. When they drove under the elms past white cottages in the village green, while they were talking so lightly and properly, that none of the New England gossips could be wounded in the sense of propriety. Carl was learning her anew. She was an outdoor girl now, in low-collared blouse and white linen skirt. He rejoiced in her modulating laugh, the contrast of blue eyes and dark brows under her Panama hat, her full dark hair, with a lock sun-drenched her bare throat, boyishly brown, femininely smooth, the sweet clean, fine-textured girl-flesh, of the hollow of one shoulder faintly to be seen in the shadow of her broad, drooping collar, one hand with a curious ring of rose quartz and steel points, excitedly pounding a tattoo of greeting with a whip-handle, her spirited irreverences regarding the people they passed, chatter which showed the world transformed as though ruby glass, a Ruth radiant, understanding his comrade. She was all that he had believed during her absence, and doubted while he was coming to her. But he had no time to repent of his doubt, now. So busy was he exulting to himself, slipping a hand under her arm. Lover, I should say I do. The carriage rolled out of town with the rhythmic creak of a country buggy, climbed a hill range by means of the black, oily state road, and turned upon a sandy side-road. A brook ran beside them. 
Sunny fields alternated with woods leaf-floored, quiet, holy, miraculous after the weary city. Below was a vista of downward-sloping fields, divided by creeper-covered stone walls. Then a sun-meshed valley, set with ponds like shining glass dishes on a green tablecloth. Beyond all, a long reach of hillsides, covered with unbroken fleecy forests, like green down. So much unspoiled country, and yet there's people herded in subways, complained Carl. They drove along a level road, lined with wild raspberry bushes, and full of a thin jade light from the shading maples. They gossiped of the Pattenkers and the Berkshires of the difference between the professional English weekender and the American who still has something of the naive provincial delight of going visiting of New York and the Dunaways, but their talk lulled to a nervous hush. It seemed to him that a great voice cried from the clouds, It is beside Ruth that you are sitting, Ruth whose arm you feel. In silence he caught her left hand. As he slowly drew back her hand and the reins with it to stop the ambling horse, the two children stared straight at each other, hungry, tremendously afraid. Their kiss, not only their lips, but their spirits, met without one reserve. A straining, long kiss, as though they were forcing their lips into one body of living flame, a kiss in which his eyes were blind to the enchantment of the jade light about them, his ears deaf to brook and rustling forest. All his senses were concentrated on the close warmth of her misty lips, the curve of her young shoulder, her woman's sweetness and longing. Then his senses forgot even her lips and floated off into a blurred trance of bodiless happiness, the kiss of nirvana. No foreign thought or trains or people or the future came now to drag him to earth. It was the most devoted, most sacred moment he had known. As he became again conscious of lips and cheek and brave shoulders and of her widespread fingers gripping his upper arm, she was slowly breaking the spell of the kiss, but again and again she kissed him, hasty, savage tokens of rejoicing possession. She cried, I do know now. I do love you. Blessed. In silence they stared into the woods while her fingers smoothed his knuckles. Her eyes were faint with tears in the magic jade light. I didn't know a kiss could be like that, she marveled presently. I would have believed selfish Ruth couldn't give all of herself. Yes, it was the whole universe. Oh, dear, I wasn't experimenting that time. I'm glad, glad to know I can really love, not just curiosity. I've wanted you so all day I thought four o'clock would ever come. Oh, darling, my dear, dear Hawk, I don't even know for sure I'd like you when you came. Sometimes I wanted terribly to have your silly, foolish, childish, pale hair on my breast. Such hair, ladies' hair. But sometimes I didn't want to see you at all, and I was frightened at the thought of your coming, and I fussed around in the house till Mrs. Pat laughed at me and accused me of 
being in love, and I denied it. And she was right. Blessed, I was scared to death all the way up here. I didn't think you could be as wonderful as I knew you were. That sounds mixed, but, oh, blessed, blessed, you really love me? You really love me? It's hard to believe I've actually heard you say it, and I love you so completely. Everything. I love you. That is such an adorable spot to kiss just below your ear, she said. Darling, keep me safe in the little house of arms, where there's only room for you and me. No room for offices or Aunt Emma's. But now we must hurry on. If a wagon had been coming along the road... As they entered the rhododendron lime drive of the Peyton Kerr place, Carl remembered a detail, not important, but usual. Oh, yes, he said. I've forgotten to propose. Need you proposals sound like contracts and all those other dull forms. Not like that kiss. See, there's Pat Kerr, Jr., waving at us. Can you just make him out there on the upper balcony? He's a darlingest child with ash-colored hair, cut Dutch down. I wonder if you didn't look like him when you were a boy, with your light hair. Not a chance. I was a grubby kid. Made noises. Gee, what a bully place in the house. Will you marry me? Yes, I will. It is a dear place. Mrs. Pat is... When? Always fussing over it. She plants narcissus and crocuses in the woods. So you find them growing wild. I like those awnings against the white walls. May I consider that we are engaged, then, Miss Winslow? Engaged for the next marriage? Oh, no, not engaged, dear. Don't you know it's one of my principles? But look, not to be engaged, Hawk. Everybody brings the cunning old jokes out of the mothballs when you're engaged. I'll marry you, but... Marry me next month, August. September? Nope. Please, Ruthie. Ah, oh, yes, September. Nice month. September is autumn. Harvest moon and apples to swipe. Come on, September. Well, perhaps September. We'll see. Oh, Hawk, dear, can you conceive of us actually sitting here and solemnly discussing being married? Us, the babes in the woods? And I've only known you three days or so, seems to me. Well, as I was saying, perhaps I'll marry you in September. Mm, frightens me to think of it. Frightens me and awes me and uh, amazes me and to death all at once. That is, I shall marry you unless you take to wearing pearl-gray derbies or white evening ties with black edging or kill Mason in a duel or do something equally disgraceful. But engaged I will not be. And we'll put the money for a diamond ring into a big Davenport. Are we going to be dreadfully poor? Oh, not pawn-shop poor. I made Van Zyle boost my salary last week, and with my Turicar stock I'm getting a little over $4,000 a year. Is that lots or little? Well, it will give us a decent apartment and a nearly decent maid, I guess, and if the Turicar keeps going, we can beat it off for a year, wandering after maybe three or four years. I hope so. Here we are. That's Mrs. Pat waiting for us. The Pat and Kerr house, set near the top of the highest hill in the range of the Berkshires, 
stood out white against a slope of crisp green an old manor-house of long lines and solid beams with striped awnings of red and white and in front a brick terrace with basket chairs a swinging couch and a wicker tea-table already welcoming spread with a service of royal dalton from the terrace one saw miles of valley and hills and villages strung on rambling river the valley was a golden bowl filled with the peace of afternoon a world of sun and listening woods on the terrace waited a woman of thirty-five of clever face a bit worn in the edges carefully coffered hair and careless white blouse with a tweed walking skirt she was gracefully holding out her hand greeting carl it's terribly good of you to come clear out into our wilderness she was interrupted by the bouncing appearance of a stocky handsome red-faced full-chinned curly black-haired man of forty in riding breeches and boots and a silk shirt with him an exciting small boy in rompers Pat and Kerr, Sr., and Junior. "'Here you are,' Sr. observantly remarked. "'Glad to see you, Erickson. You and Ruthie have been a deuce of a time coming up from town. Holding hands along the road, eh? Lord, these aviators!' "'Pat! Animal!' protested Mrs. Kerr and Ruth simultaneously. "'All right, I'll be good. Saw you fly at Nassau Boulevard, Erickson. Turned my horn loose and hooted till they thought I was a militant. Like Ruthie here. Lord, what flying, what flying. I'd like to see you race Wyndham and Verdens, Ruthie. Will you show Mr. Erickson where his room is? Oh, has poor old Pat got to go and drag a servant away from reading? Town topics, hey? I will, Pat, said Ruth. I will, Daddy, cried Pat, Jr. No, my son. I guess maybe Ruthie had better do it. There's a certain look in her eyes. Baltic! Salamander! Ruth and Carl passed through the wide colonial hall with mahogany tables and portraits of the curs and the sword of Colonel Patton. At the far end was an open door, and a glimpse of an old-fashioned garden, radiant with hollyhocks and canterbury bells. It was a world of utter content. As they climbed the curving stairs, Ruth tucked her arm in his, saying, now do you see why I won't be engaged? Pat Kerr is the best chum in the world, yet he finds even a possible engagement wildly humorous, like mothers-in-law or poets or falling on your ear. But, gee, Ruth, are you going to marry me? You little child, my little boy hawk, of course I'm going to marry you. Do you think I would miss my chance of a cabin in the Rockies? my famous hawk, what everybody cheered at Nassau Boulevard? She opened the door of his room with a deferential, Thy chambers, my lord. Come down quickly, she said. We mustn't miss a moment of these days. I am frank with you about how glad I am to have you here. You must be good to me. You will prize my love a little, won't you? Before he could answer, she had run away. After half-homecomings and false homecomings, the adventurer had really come home. He inspected the gracious room, its chintz hangings, four-poster bed, low wicker chair by the fireplace, fresh Cherokee roses on the mantel, a room of cheerfulness and open space. He stared into the woods where a cool light lay on moss and fern. He did not need to remember Ruth's kisses, for each breath of hilltop air, each emerald of moss, each shining mahogany surface in the room, repeated to him that he had found the grail, whose other name is love. 
Saturday they loafed over breakfast, the sun licking the treetops and the ravine outside the windows, and they motored with the curs to Lennox, returning through the darkness. Till midnight they talked on the terrace. They loafed again the next morning, and let the fresh air dissolve the office grime which had been coating his spirit. They were so startlingly original as to be simple-hearted country lovers. In the afternoon, declining Kerr's offer of a car, and rambled off on bicycles. From her eyes they saw water gleaming among the trees. The sullen green of pines set off the silvery green of barley, and an orchard climbed the next rise. The smoky shadow of another hill range promised long, cool forest roads. Crows were flying overhead. Going where they would, the aviator and the girl who read psychology, modern lovers, stood hand in hand as though the age of machinery were a myth, as though he were a piping minstrel and she a shepherdess. Before them was the open road, and all around them the hum of bees. A close, listless heat held Monday afternoon, even on the hilltop. The clay tennis court was baking. The worn bricks of the terrace reflected a furnace glow. The curs had disappeared for a nap. Carl, lounging with Ruth on the swinging couch in the shade, thought of the slaves in New York offices and tenements. Then, because he would himself be back in an office next day, he let the glare of the valley soothe him with its wholesome heat. "'Certainly would like a swim,' he remarked. "'Couldn't we bike down to Fisher's Pond or maybe take the ford?' "'Let's. But there's no bathhouse.' Put a bathing suit under your dress. Sun'll dry it in no time after the swim. As you command, my liege. And she ran in to change. They motored down to Fisher's Pond, which is a lake, and stopped in a natural wooded opening, like a dim-lighted green room. From it stretched the enameled lake, the further side reflecting unbroken woods. The nearer water edge was exquisite in its cleanliness. They saw perched fantastically floating over the pale sand-bottom, among scattered reeds whose watery-green stalks were like the thin columns of a dancing-hall for small fishes. The surface of the lake, satiny as the palm of a girl's hand, broke in the tiniest of ripples against white quartz pebbles on the hot shore. Cool, flashing, golden-sanded, the lake coaxed them out of their forest room. "'A lot like the Minnesota lakes, only smaller,' said Carl. I'm going right in. About ready for a swim? Come on. I'm afraid. She suddenly plumped on the earth and hugged her skirts about her ankles. Why, blessed, what are you scared of? No sharks here, and no undertow. Nice white sand. Oh, Hawk, I was silly. I felt I was such an independent modern woman, uh, uh, and I aren't. I've always said it was silly for girls to swim in a woman's bathing suit. Skirts are so cumbersome. So I put on a boy's bathing suit under my dress, and I'm terribly embarrassed. Why, blessed. Well, I guess you'll have to decide. His voice was somewhat shaky. Awful scared of Carl. Yes, I thought I wouldn't be with you, but I'm self-conscious as can be. Well, gee, I don't know, of course. Well, I'll jump in, and you can decide. He peeled off his white flannels and stood in his blue bathing suit, not statue-like, not very brown now, but trim-waisted, shapely armed, wonderfully clean of neck and jaw. With a wee, he dashed into the water and swam out, overhand. 
As he turned over and glanced back, his heart caught to see her standing on the creamy sand, a shy, elfin figure in a boy's bathing suit of black wool, a woman and slim boy in one, silken-throated and graceful-limbed, curiously smaller than when dressed. Her white skirt and blouse lay tumbled about her ankles. She raised rosy arms to hide her flushed face and her eyes as she cried, "'Don't look!' He obediently swam on with a tenderness more poignant than longing. He heard her splashing behind him and turned again to see her racing through the water. Those soft yet not narrow shoulders rose and fell sturdily under the wet black wool. Her eyes shone, and she was all comradey boy, save for her dripping, splendid hair. Singing, Come on, lazy! She headed across the pond. He swam beside her reveling in the well-being of cool water and warm air till they reached the solemn shade beneath the trees on the other side and floated in the dark still water splashing idle hands gazing into forest hollows spying upon the brisk business of squirrels among the acorns back at the greenwood room ruth wrapped her sailor blouse about her and they squatted like unself-conscious children on the beach while from a field a distant locust fiddled his august fandango and in flame-colored pride an oriole went by. Fresh sky, sunfish like tropic shells in the translucent water, arching reeds dipping their olive-green points in the water, wavelets rushing against a gray, neglected rowboat. And beside him, Ruth. Musingly, they built a castle of sand, an hour of understanding so complete that it made the heart melancholy. When he sighed, Giddily, come on, blessed, we're dry now. It seemed that they could never again know such rapt tranquility. Yet they did, for that evening when they stood on the terrace, trying to forget that he must leave her and go back to the lonely city in the morning, when the mist reached chilly tentacles up from the valley, they kissed a shy goodbye, and Carl knew that life's real adventure is not adventuring, but finding the playmate with whom to quest life's meaning. End of chapter 39